And because of that, we're going to continue on uh, through the next couple of weeks, at least, uh, regarding bringing you some people in the Bible. Yes, people in the Bible that actually experienced either long or short-term depression and why. So this morning, I'd like you all to turn with me to the second epistle to the church at Corinth. Open to the first chapter, 2 Corinthians 1. And we're going to look at one verse for our text. We're going to look at verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you are a visitor here this morning, I'd just like to say welcome. We are so glad that you are here. Thank you for coming and, and being with us in the house of the Lord. I typically read from the New International Version of the Bible. That is what's going to be up here behind me. And if you have a different version, a different translation, if not version, um, then please feel free to look up here or follow the bouncing ball as you read, okay? All right, let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. This morning, I'd like to speak to you for just a few minutes concerning Paul. Now, we don't typically think of Paul, yeah, that Paul, as a person who would have ever dealt with or suffered with depression. And I'm going to be honest with you, normally under normal circumstances, I couldn't agree with you more. We just don't think of Paul as an individual who could possibly, under any iteration of life, suffering with the idea of depression. And I'm there. I get that. However, there is an exception to this idea. And that exception is this specific case. This one right here. Um, you see, here's the thing, and, and, and I'm just going to set this up so that everybody understands that if I were trying as a minister and I want to bring some really cool message and sermon out here to you guys, if I were trying to make a case for Paul having suffered with depression at one time or another... And I tried to make that case by grabbing verses and grabbing statements that he made or someone else made about him from all over the New Testament and threw out a bunch of his writings. Then I, just for the purpose of saying to you guys, look, I told you, see, Paul was depressed. If that was my approach, if I did that, if I did what um, Bible scholars, theologians, and Bible students call proof text, just extract stuff from all over the New Testament just for the point of trying to make a case 
that Paul suffered with depression, then I'd have to concede the fact that that'd be a pretty weak case. That'd be pretty lame, I'm going to be honest with you. It would be a contrivance. I, I, I would have had to try far too hard. I would have been grasping at straws just to make a case. Little more than me manipulating God's Word in an attempt to convince you of an idea that just isn't true. I don't know if you know that, but that actually happens in churches sometimes. But in this case, that's not the case. I'm not running around all over the New Testament here in an attempt to convince you that I have a valid point. That's not what I'm doing. As I've already mentioned, ordinarily, I would not be one to think, much less suggest that Paul suffered with depression even momentarily. But in this case, all of the evidence is coming from just one single source. Everything that I'm going to present to you today is only coming from one source. The second letter to the church at Corinth. All of it comes from there. With all that said, this is Paul we're talking about. Paul is one of those people in the Bible that we have this tendency of thinking that under his toga, if you were to grab it, pull it open, there's a big S right there. That's how we view people like Paul. When in reality, there's only one Superman in the Bible in its totality. And Paul isn't him. There is a superman. In theological circles, they call him the theanthropic man. Theo meaning God, man meaning, or anthropic meaning anthrop, anthropos, man. The God man. There's only one. Paul's not him. This is Paul, though, and he's the guy that Pastor. Jack Graham refers to as the man, quote, known as the greatest Christian ever to live, end quote. What could Paul possibly have experienced that could have driven him to even an ephemeral, a very short-term depression? What could that have been? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I think if we're going to push the envelope here just a little bit, I think Paul said it best when he said um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day, a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, 
in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles. In danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. Now that list right there is... Wow. Anybody want to compare, compare credentials with Paul? Anybody? Stand up. Don't be afraid. It's okay. Nope. Nope. No, okay. Well, here's the problem with that list. It doesn't stop there. You see, jump down to verses 32 and 33, and Paul goes on. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. All of this had been written in the same book as our text verse, Second Corinthians. A book that only eight verses into the book that chapter, chapter 1, says we were under great pressure. Now listen to this and don't just read it like you would a novel. Read this as though a living person is attempting to convey what actually transacted in their life and in their living. We were under great pressure. Now listen to this far beyond our ability to endure. So that we despaired of life itself. Now ponder what that means. We were under great pressure. Has anybody ever thought of themselves, whether at work or at college or in school or some other arena, I have been under some serious pressure before. Anybody? Don't be afraid. We all say that. We have been under great pressure, whether it be a project at work, uh, something that our professors are demanding in college, uh, homework from high school or junior high, something in our home life, something at the house. Man, there's some serious pressure. Or a lot of all of that congealing into one moment in time, and we say, God and Almighty, I'm under so much pressure right now. And that pressure affects us in such a way that if even for a moment we're not ourselves, but now listen to how Paul puts it. We all can relate to the great pressure until. He starts speaking immediately after the comma. 
far beyond our ability to endure. How many here have been pushed to the edge of your capacity to endure what was occurring in your life? You've been pushed to the point. This is where you can go, and that's where your endurance ends. Right here. That's it. That's what you've got. And Paul says the pressure was so great, that line in the sand that we don't cross because we can't endure that, I wasn't there anymore. I was somewhere out there. Far beyond what we could endure. And it was so far outside the box, so far outside the lines where is normal living and endurance, Paul said, so that we despaired of life itself. In other words, they had been pushed by this pressure to the point where they simply had resigned themselves that we recognize the fact that we're not making it out of this. Been there? Anybody? Been there? Handful. What happened that could have made Paul say such things as this? Because let's be honest, that's not typical Paul, right? Remember? Remember the S? Whatever it was that they were experiencing was far beyond their ability to even so much as endure it any longer. And they despaired of life itself. What had been so incredibly difficult, uh, Paul said to the Corinthian believers, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. So for me... When I'm looking at this this way, I think to myself, what in the world happened in Asia? That's what I think. Because when you read of someone like Paul being pushed to the brink, Paul, you got to ask, what in the world went down in Asia? Well, as verse 8 opens up in chapter 1, it is clear that the Apostle Paul genuinely wanted the Corinthians to be thoroughly aware of the trouble that he had recently experienced, partly in order to contest. Part of his motivation here was to contest an accusation that was out there in the wind. It was floating around in the wind there in Corinth that had been brought against him by some false apostles. What they had said was that Paul, because he had made this promise to the church at Corinth to come and to see them, to come and visit them and, and uh, depart or, or impart into them some kind of, of blessing and ministry and so on upon his, with his presence being there. Yet, Paul didn't make it. He hadn't made it. And so because of that, these false apostles had leveled these accusations and got the church thinking, or at least in, dropped seeds of doubt into the church at Corinth, that Paul was weak 
and that he was inconsistent because, look, man, he said he was coming and he hasn't been here. That's Paul for you. So in part, Paul wants the church at Corinth to understand how hard this has been. What has actually been going on? Now, in order to show that this accusation was false, Paul wanted them to know that though he genuinely intended a trip to them, he was hindered by doing so, by a very great affliction which befell him. The place where his trouble came is said by him to be in Asia. It happened in Asia. Some have speculated that this affliction, whatever that was, refers to everything and everything and anything that befell him and the difficulties that he met with while in Asia, this all taking place over a period of time of about three years. Okay? So some have speculated that, oh man, it's a whole bunch of stuff. Some, on the other hand, have speculated that's just one thing. Anyway, with all that happening over this period of three years, it detained him longer than he had initially anticipated being there. So he's trying to dispel this myth. These difficulties that people are talking about uh, with respect to what Paul may have endured there in Asia, they are cataloged in the books of Acts, the book of Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, as well as 2nd Timothy. And, they're ra- and, and they range, there's a bunch of them, but highlights, they range from a riot that was incited by a silversmith who didn't like what Paul was saying and doing, fighting his words now, fighting with wild beasts. Now, that reference in your Bible, fighting with wild beasts, that Paul said, is likely, probably, figurative language. It wasn't real animals. And there's a reason for that. Paul, on more than one occasion, informs his readers that he's a Roman citizen, right? Everybody knows that. Well, in ancient Rome, a Roman citizen could not be put into the Colosseum to face the wild animals. That was not an execution that they could uh, inflict upon someone. So the, the, figurative, the, the language fighting wild beasts is likely figurative language, likening his opposition from both Jews and Gentiles so vicious, so violent, so angry, he likened it to the wild beasts in the Colosseum. Figurative language? Probably, but still. He experienced numerous imprisonments, a flogging by Jewish uh, officials and authorities likely to have occurred in Laodicea, and an illness that nearly took his life. And this list could go on and on and on. Again, all you have to do is flip in your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and read, like we already have. Many interpreters have, uh, are of the opinion that the disturbance raised by the guy I've just referred to, the silversmith, Demetrius, in Ephesus is meant by what he was talking about. Paul was talking about when they were under so much stress, beyond what they could deal with, they thought they were going to die. Some people think that it was Demetrius the silversmith's riot because Paul and his 
patriots were under such duress at that point in time that they feared for their lives. Uh, that's in Acts 19 right, for, for, for your uh, records. However, that riot only lasted one day and no longer. They were threatened for one day. And then that situation uh, uh, concluded. And since it only lasted one day, that could not have been what happened in the province of Asia that kept Paul from getting to the Corinthian church again as promised. It just didn't last long enough. So with that said, there's a lot, and I do mean a lot. If you go to the Internet and you look up 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, there is a lot of speculation as to what Paul was referring to in verse 8. But whatever the affliction was, the Corinthians already knew about it. How do we know that? Because when the Apostle Paul introduces this idea about the affliction that he and his friends experienced, did you notice he gives zero details? He didn't fill in any blanks. He didn't list any issues specifically whatsoever. He mentions it only to inform the church at Corinth concerning the gravity of what they already had been informed about. Hey, did you hear about Paul? Oh, yeah, wow, that's a terrible thing. Paul comes around and says, this is how bad it really was. Despite the lack of details, it's apparent that Paul came, quote, so close to a terrible death that he had given himself up as lost. When deliverance came, it was greeted as a miracle of resurrection and as the action of God in response to prayer. The nature of the crisis is not specified in the epistle, but the Corinthians knew well what he was referring to, for they are meant to take comfort and hope from Paul's suffering and deliverance, end quote. So although we don't know what specifically happened to Paul in Asia, we do know exactly two things. One, that whatever happened, Paul was so overwhelmed and under such crushing duress that he had essentially resigned himself to death. That we know. And two, that as a result, the Corinthians were then meant to be beneficiaries of his trial, his affliction, by taking both comfort and hope from Paul's unimaginable suffering and his subsequent deliverance. That's the two things we do know. How do we know that the Corinthians were supposed to be the beneficiaries of all this stuff that nearly killed Paul? How do we know that? Why do I come to that conclusion? It's very simple. Let's listen to what Paul said. Immediately before he said, verse 8, Chapter 1, 2 Corinthians, verses 3 through 7. 
This is what he led after he gives his greeting in verses 1 and 2, which he always did. Then he went into this five-verse statement about God before he runs into verse 8 and tells them how bad things have been. Listen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share, and when Paul says we, he's talking about himself. He's not talking about we, the greater. He's talking about we, himself. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. That's how we know the second thing of the two things that we know, that the Corinthian church was supposed to benefit from his sufferings and his subsequent deliverance and the comfort with which it came is because he says so, plain as day, right here in verses 3 through 7. Here in these verses, verses that immediately precede our text, Paul sets the stage for his remarks in verse 8. He gives a framework and a meaning to his suffering. He's not out there suffering because people are just real jerks and they don't like the gospel. No, there's a point to our suffering. And there was a point to Paul's. He sets this up so that they understand it. He didn't allow his suffering to destroy him before he even mentions how dire his circumstances have been. He spoke first of God's compassion and His comfort for those who also suffer in Christ. Notice that there is no evidence, none whatsoever, of questioning reasoning or rationalizing what he went through. Nothing of the sort. He speaks of just how bad his circumstances were only after he acknowledges who God is and how he worked through his trials. Now I'm going to be honest with you. And I probably shouldn't be honest with you. Church folk want to blame the devil for everything. Two things. One, 
Life is life, folks. Life is life. And sometimes it gets ugly and hard. That's not the devil. We did that. Remember this. I was talking to somebody about this just last week. God told the first couple, you eat of this, you die. Death comes in all forms, all shapes, sizes, and colors. Trouble is one of the symptoms of death. You may not be dead, but brothers and sisters, let me be the Christian right here today, the minister of faith and power that breathes all kinds of goodness into your life. You may not be dead, but you're dying. I got a yep out of that. That's all I got. Thank you, dear. I love you. Ah, uh, yep. Not a person here agreed with that, except for Linda. A little late, sorry. And with that said, we have to get it through our thick skulls. The devil isn't responsible for everything. We could have said no to the tree, but we didn't. You just remember this. The devil isn't powerful enough to make you do anything. You decide what you do and don't do. Adam and Eve, they decided. Eve decided to eat the fruit. Adam was too taken by Eve to say no. Now we got a truthful man over here. You see God's initial creation of what he calls woman running around in a garden, buck naked, and you happen to be her husband, you're going to say, okay, honey, I'll eat that right now. Yeah, you know. That's going to happen. That is how it works. The devil, I, I don't care what Flip Wilson said. For those of you who are too young to know who Flip Wilson is, look him up. I don't care what Flip Wilson says. The devil doesn't make you do anything. We decide to do everything. Okay? If you happen to be too weak to not do a thing, okay. That's, that's, that's on you, not on me. It's certainly not on God, and it's not on the devil. His job is to tempt you, and he's really good at it. My predecessor here in this pulpit used to use an illustration about a dog. Actually, about two dogs. You get two dogs in a fight. Which dog's going to win? It's the one who gets fed more. Yep. It's the one who gets fed more. I think I'm supposed to move on. We need to recognize the fact that we don't need to be blaming the devil for everything in our lives, ladies and gentlemen. When suffering comes our way, we were told in the New Testament, you will suffer persecution. 
that's not some optional thing that you opt in for, like how many dependents are going to end up on your W-2. If you're going to pay for this amount of insurance on your paycheck or this amount. That's not what this is. He said you're going to. Yes? Ladies and gentlemen, we need to stop telling everybody that the devil has been after us. Look at me. Look. Everybody looking at me. No kidding. Really? You could have blown me over with a feather. The devil's after you? Oh my word, that's news. Does the devil hate God? Yes or no? Yes. Guess what? Can he go up there and get into a brawl with God? No. So how does he do it? He tries to get it him to him through us. What do you think this world is so torn up over? He's trying to drag everything God loves into an eternal hell because he's do, that's where he's headed and that's where he wants to go. He's after you? No kidding! Which dog are you feeding? Stop telling everybody the devil's after you. You don't look like a spiritual genius when you say that. We know that. Take the suffering, take the afflictions, take the trials, take the, the, the crises that you're in, and look for God in it. Because He will take everything that you are enduring and turn it, what? For His good. One of the reasons we have problems filling our churches is not the coronavirus. It's a lack of credibility on the part of the body of Christ for being honest about who and what we are. That's the reality. And we need to get that right. Stop telling everybody the devil's after you. On the flip side, stop telling everybody that you're after the devil. No, you're not. You get into a fight with the devil. I'm going to tell you the result of that fight. You ready? You're going to have to unzip your pants just to hold a conversation because he will kick your righteous butt up between your shoulder blades so high, no one will hear you speak until you unzip your pants. You are no match. Stop bragging about what you can't do. This isn't about us going after the devil. Jesus already took care of the devil. This is about us going after lost people. That's where you amen. All right. I guess I've kind of blown my cork enough, right, Elder? Believe it or not, I'm actually at my conclusion. Everybody go. Which one of you? Who did it? Who did it? The worship leader. Why didn't that surprise me? Second Corinthians 1 and 8. 
speaks of a moment in time, a mere snapshot in Paul's life where he experienced a catastrophic, episodic failure of hope. A failure that was the result of some unknown event or series of events that if it had been allowed to proceed to its logical conclusion, Paul would have died. And we wouldn't have a second letter to the church at Corinth today. We would have only one book of Corinthians. Just one. And we would view it much like the way we view the book of Romans or Galatians and others. We wouldn't be discussing this verse right now. However, that's not how this played out. That's not how this worked. Like Mephibosheth, like Moses, and even like Jonah, God wasn't finished with Paul. God still had work for the apostle to the Gentiles to do. Part of that work was to communicate the message of the, to the Corinthian believers and by extension, brothers and sisters, to us that we can be encouraged to trust God, the God of our salvation, even in the most extreme of circumstances. Even if those circumstances can be described as being, quote, under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. End quote. And finally, Owarakuboma said, Even broken crayons still draw straight lines. It only depends on how you hold them. Now, it's only my opinion, and everybody's got opinions. So take this or leave this. It's only my opinion, but I think Paul still had a few straight lines left in him. So do I. So do you. Even if you've, ev- if you've ev- ever experienced a momentary collapse of faith. Now that's one of those questions you don't ask a congregation because you're not going to get hands raised. Have you ever had a momentary collapse of faith? People go, I didn't do that. I bet you, no, you, no. Mm. The reality is you may, you may have been broken, brothers and sisters. You may have been, but I'm, I'm betting that like Paul and like me, you still have a few straight lines left in you. Amen? Stand with me today. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, can we worship the Lord? It's not even noon yet. Father, we worship you. We give you praise. We give you glory. Hallelujah. Lord, we praise you. We acknowledge the fact that you are here. And Father, we are careful not to offend you. We love you and praise you and glorify your name. Hallelujah. Father, we worship you and glorify your name.